Good evening. Uh, I'd invite you to turn with me to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 10. Uh, Gospel of John, chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 16 tonight. And uh, before we, we read the text and pray, I want to just tee up where we're going. As you turn there, uh, in our passage, as you'll see, Jesus gives two word pictures. He gives two because they didn't understand the first one. But both one essentially illustrate one simple point. The point that Jesus is making is that he is the one and only Savior. He is the all-sufficient Savior. He is the only effective, fully effective Savior. And that everything else, anything else, is not merely an error, not merely incorrect. It is harmful, deceitful, and deadly. And that's the point in our passage tonight, and we're going to be focusing on that point. We're going to walk through these word pictures at a fairly high level, but in keeping with this focus on testimonies and to drive that point home, I'm actually going to weave my own testimony at, uh, through this as we, as we exposit the text. And there's a reason why I'm doing it. You'll understand that hopefully at the end, but the goal is to illustrate how Jesus got this sheep to illustrate how he gets sheep in general. And I think this is going to be effective and fun, hopefully, but we'll, we'll find out together, won't we? All right. But with that, let's read our text and pray. This is John chapter 10, verses 1 to 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep will follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. But this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd." Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for our time tonight. We just pray, Lord, that you would open up these poor, lisping, stammering lips, Lord, to preach your word effectively, and that everything that uh, is said tonight, Lord, would find fertile soil, that Christ would be exalted, and that we would rest our comfort in the fact that the good shepherd always gets his sheep. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said a moment ago, Jesus provides two illustrations uh, in service of one larger point, that he and he alone is the one who brings light and life. He and he alone is the one who saves. And this claim of exclusivity is all over our passage. Just to uh, name a few, verse 2, he says, He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. 
Verse 4, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him. Verse 7, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 8, all who came before me are thieves. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Verse 12, he who is a hired hand and not the shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And that's just a few of the more direct ones. There's all sorts of implied ones in the passage as well. Jesus is emphasizing ever so clearly that he and he alone is the one who brings light and life. He is the shepherd. He is the door. He alone gives life. And standing opposite to him is everything and anything else. When he says in verse 8 that all who came before me are thieves and robbers, this is a sweeping statement. In effect, he is speaking about every bit of false teaching and false religion that has ever existed, either directly or by implication. He is speaking of everything and anything that would take us away from the sincere, faith-based worship of the triune God through the mediation of the Son. And if you stop and just kind of think about the length of human history and the, the history of human religion, both in terms of false teaching and false religions, that's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of stuff. The breadth of error and false teaching and the volume of those who would seek to take you down those false paths is staggering. And Jesus in this passage doesn't mince words about those that would happily lead you down a false path. In verse 1, they are thieves and robbers that try to get to the sheep through illegitimate means. In verse 5, they're described as strangers. In verse 12, he talks, th talks about them in terms of being hired hands who don't care at all about the sheep. And he's explicit about their purpose. In verse 10, he says their purpose is to kill and steal and destroy. These are bad men aiming at accomplishing bad things. And just think about those words for a second, thievery or robbery. These are folks who want the sheep for their own gain. They are in it for themselves, not the sheep. The sheep are, in fact, being preyed upon. Or we can think about the words kill and destroy. The sheep aren't just a commodity. They aren't just a source of gain. The thief doesn't just come to take from you. The thief comes to actively do you harm. Whether we're talking about false teaching or false religions, they are all characterized by that word, by harm. They may have some temporary, short-term benefits here, but ultimately loss, death, and destruction is all that they truly offer. There is Christ and life on one side, and there is everything else that brings death on the other. And in my own life, that was my personal experience. I unlike Austin, did not grow up in a Christian household. My parents, when they got divorced in sixth grade, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I lashed out and tried to grab onto something to, to sort of fill the void that I was feeling. And between sixth and ninth grades, religion was it. And when I say religion was it, I spent those years researching every religion under the sun. I looked into major religions, I looked into ancient religions, I looked into the occult, you name it, I looked into it. Seventh grade Jason, Jason could have had a pretty reasonable conversation with you about Persian, Persian Zoroastrianism if you had wanted to. I still remember uh, uh, rituals, uh, candle rituals to get the blessing from certain Celtic gods. Like, I, they're, they're, I researched everything under the sun. 
And at the end of the day, after years of doing that, there are a couple of, of takeaways that I, you know, conclusions that I came to. First, it was remarkable how many of those religions were performative in some way. It was all about you doing stuff, systems, practices, rituals, customs. Oftentimes, what you did was the center and the focus. Second, just about every single one of those religions didn't offer any sort of personal relationship with the deities they claimed to serve. They're, what Christianity offers in terms of a personal relationship with God was very different, very distinct. And you, after looking at them all, you kind of get the impression that at the end of the day, they're ultimately about doing things to get the stuff you want out of the gods you serve. It's all about kind of putting a coin in the slot to get something out of it. Those religions didn't just lack any life or vibrancy. At the end of the day, you end up being the center of your own universe, even if you're ostensibly serving something or someone else. It just ends up being about you. And that, back in our text, is absolutely harmful. It is absolutely deadly. It's deadly eternally, and it is deadly during our time on this earth. Now, seventh, eighth grade, whatever, Jason didn't realize any of that. All I knew is I had come to the conclusion that all of those religions out there were self-serving, filled with empty rituals, and demonstratively false mythologies. So after a ton of studying and tinkering and experimenting, I ended up rejecting every religion I studied. Now, that didn't mean I escaped the thief. Of course not. I just settled on a different sort of false religion. I became an atheist. And if you find that odd, me calling atheism a religion, it, it really absolutely is. The only difference is the deity you serve in atheism is yourself. And not only did I become a devoted atheist, I became a thoughtful and consistent one as well. See, I realized that there was no God, if everything was just some big cosmic accident, if life evolved through chance and not design, then technically nothing mattered. There's no meaning behind anything. And if nothing mattered, then during at least my time on the earth, the only thing that really mattered was my happiness. And so in a conscious, deliberate way, my wants, desires, thoughts, plans, and preferences became all that mattered to me. I even realized by implication that if all of that was true, if my time on this earth was about maximizing my happiness, then that meant by implication that everybody else, all of you, only mattered to the extent that you were serving my interests. That's the logical implication of atheism. 15-year-old Jason realized that and lived that out accordingly. That's how I saw the world and how I lived life. And again, kind of going back to that theme of death and thievery and harm in our text, I promise you that is nothing if not destructive. It is not how we were made to live. It is the ultimate exaltation of self over the true God. That has consequences. It sears consciences and it destroys relationships. And somewhat ironically, uh, even as I was living in this deadly way, I actually became a false teacher to others too. I was an annoying kid in high school who would take the opportunity to argue against any single person who dared mention God or the Bible in class. There were kids who came up years later after me who told me that our conversations about religion, either during class or at lunch, led them to abandon their faith later, or whatever they, they, they thought was their faith later. Rather, or far from Jesus and the abundant life that's on this side of the equation in our text, I ended up dead and lifeless myself and playing the role of thief in the life of others. Now, 
there is more that Jesus says about false teaching and false religions in our text, and I was not done learning uh, everything that Jesus was going to teach me about those things. I ended up getting another sort of hands-on lesson in college, which I'll, I'll bring back to our passage in a second. But just as a contextual side note, um, my parents had us playing sports all my life, and I realized about in high school that I was really good at running. I mean, like top 30 in the country running good. Um, so I ended up, that came out wrong, top 30 in the country good at running. There we go, that's much better. Um, so I, uh, I parlayed that into a scholarship. Now, rather than doing the smart thing and parlaying that into a scholarship to a good school, I used that to go and get a scholarship to a school that was good at running. Uh, there was a, a school, the, the, the cross-country team was top 10 in the nation. The coach was a U.S. Olympic track and field coach. So that's where I signed up to go. Now, ironically, given everything I've said about religion so far, that school was in Utah, which, which was fun, right, as you can imagine. But a funny thing happened when I got there. While I still maintained my atheism and I reacted, as you would imagine, to the shadow that Mormonism casts over that state, I really liked the guys on my team. We, we lived with them. We spent just about every waking hour with them, going to class, practice, hanging out afterwards. And to a man, they were all happy, friendly, and fun people. And I found myself wanting what, I ha what they had, because at the end of the day, that kind of cold, dispassionate, logical atheism, it's lonely. It's very lonely. When people are a commodity, when you only see people in terms of how they can benefit you, you sort of realize how profoundly alone you really are. And we were never meant for that. Adam technically started off alone, and in Genesis 2.18, it says that Eve was given to him because it's, quote, not good for a man to be alone. And in our passage in verse 10, when Jesus says that he came to give life and that abundantly, while not the primary focus, I think that includes the sort of family and community and brotherhood with one another that we were always meant to have. None of us were meant to be alone, and so I found myself craving real human connections. And also, if I'm being honest, there was a girl involved. Long story short, I really liked her, um, and hanging out with her involved spending time with her family, and that also meant going to church with her on Sundays. Now, fun fact there too, Mormon churches vary wildly from ward to ward. If you want to talk about that later, happy to explain why, but they really vary a lot, and they do not talk about the crazier parts of their doctrine. Um, in my experience, Mormon church services center around two things, educational teaching on practical ways to live a moral life and how grateful they are that they found the quote-unquote true church. And that is how they get you. They woo you with the promise of a happy life. And taking this back to our text, this is the form of false teaching that is probably most common in our day and age. 2,000 years ago or 700 years ago, if you were in the Aztec Empire, you were probably told if you do not sacrifice this to this God, no rain is going to come. There was a coercive element to it. But in our day and age, we don't hear that a whole lot. What we really hear is, here's what I'm offering you. If you believe this, if you follow me, here's all the great blessings, all the great things that you're going to get. And this illustrates a deep irony in what Jesus says in our passage. Because we already saw these false teaching thieves are there to what? To kill, steal, to destroy. But they don't walk in with guns blazing. Their intent is evil, but their approach is anything but. 
In verse 1, Jesus says they climb into the sheepfold. They avoid the gatekeeper. They sneak in. They are stealthy. They don't try to overpower the guard of the sheep. They try to get to the sheep through underhanded means. And in verse 5, Jesus says something interesting. He says, A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. The image is not somebody who's breaking into the sheepfold, whacking a sheep on the head, you know, possum over their shoulders and hopping back out. They want a lot of you. They want as many as they can get their hands on. And so they're coming in, not just murdering sheep and dragging them out. They're coming in and trying to coax the sheep out. The thief tries to lure them. The thief doesn't sneak in and murder. He sneaks in and tries to convince the sheep to follow him out. That is the custom of the thief in our passage. It is the custom of false teaching. The thief makes offers to the sheep in an attempt to lure the sheep to them. Follow me, the thief says, and you will find purpose and fulfillment. Follow me and you will have peace with God. Follow me and you will have a happy life. Follow me and you'll get all the material things that your heart desires. And Mormonism is no different. They don't start out telling you all the crazy nonsense that Joseph Smith did or believed. They bury that stuff and offer a good-looking life. Simple, conservative, patriotic, moral, friendly, nice. And that's attractive. It really is. It's attractive because it's a mimic of a godly life. It looks like a copy of the type of life that we're supposed to live, and there is something in our souls that resonates with it, and so it, it looks attractive. Sadly, though, I didn't know any of the things that I just said. All I knew is that I wanted it, I wanted what they offered, and let's, again, be honest, it was the only way to have a future with that girl in question. By the way, it's not Sarah, just for the record, just so you know, we're clear. So I joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for about six months. It didn't last long. Um, now, now as to why, it's because there was no power. I had signed up, but I wasn't any different. I made an effort to live the, the life that people were living, but I failed over and over and over again. And at the very beginning, that was concerning, but eventually it stopped mattering at all to me. I was no different. I was trying to put lipstick on a pig, and who I was eventually really won out. After about six months, I realized three things. Number one, no girl was worth the amount of faking I would have to do for the rest of my life to make this work. Number two, it was a lot more fun sinning than it was wanting to sin and pretending not to want to. And three, I had no hope of indulging in the things that I wanted to indulge in in Utah. So I gave up my scholarship, returned home, resumed my atheism, and spent the next year doing anything I wanted to do whenever I wanted to do it. To quote Peter in 2 Peter 2.22, himself quoting Proverbs, the dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Emphasize that point, I had literally just given up a scholarship I had worked for years on and jumped states in order to be able to sin the way I had wanted to. When I wrote this, I, I couldn't help but think of Ephesians 2.3. Paul says, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And I can't tell you how fantastic a description of me that was. And looking back, it was nothing short of a miracle that God didn't just let me keep on in that direction. 
After all, that would have been just. In Romans 1.24, we do see that as a uh, function of God's judgment, he does give people over to their sins. It would have been just for him to say, if that's how you want to live, have at it. While I accumulated greater and greater wrath for my behavior and my wants and my desires and my thoughts. I was, to quote Paul in Romans 2.5, because of my hard and impenitent heart, storing up wrath for myself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. By the way, side note, that is a terrifying verse. That verse talks about this swell of indignation that's just building and building like an overstuffed water balloon until eventually on the day of judgment, it bursts. It would have been just for God to have left me to continue to do all the things that I was doing, but he didn't in his grace. And I would call your attention to the sweetest verse in our passage, the one that's going to govern the rest of our time tonight. Jesus says in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. He's pointing out in this verse that every single one of his sheep will be personally attended to, personally called, and personally brought into the flock. And that is exactly what Jesus did for me. As I would see later, I was one of his sheep, and the great shepherd was merely moving the pieces of my life around just how he wanted them. He was, he was on his way. He had some colorful ways of doing it, though, at this point in my life. See, after indulging for about a year, doing anything I wanted to, eventually everything, everything began to feel repetitive, pointless, dull, useless, it's like the Lord was cutting me off from the things that I wanted to do. After a while, I became a sort of walking zombie. I went to school, I went to work, I ate, I slept, but I was really just going through the motions. I mean, it was actually pretty miserable looking back on it. And one day before work, uh, by the way, I worked at uh, Home Depot in Folsom. There's a Borders Books just a couple of stores down that's relevant in a second. Um, and so before work, I'd often kind of go through Borders and wander around. And I just happened to wander through the religion section of that Borders books. And I saw a book on Judaism, of all things. Now, there are Jewish roots on my mom's side of the family. I picked up that book on a whim and I started reading. And for the first time in this zombie-like existence that I was living for this last year, I felt intrigued. Something was interesting. Um, and I was fascinated by how it portrayed life, how it portrayed God, the purpose of mankind, what God wanted from us. I don't have time to go into all of what it said. If you want to talk about it, talk to me afterwards. But I really liked it, and so I bought a bunch of other books on Judaism, and I devoured them. And as I read, I found myself attracted to what they said, how they portrayed God. And one thing I will say, though, for the interest of this story and our passage is the way the books portrayed God was almost the God of the Bible. I mean, if you took the God of the Bible and you just sort of like turn down his holiness to like three, you know, from the 10 that it is, that's pretty close to how they describe the God of the Bible. There was a huge de-emphasis on his holiness. He was still holy, but it was like a secondary characteristic. In other words, sin was sin, but when we sinned, he was just so loving and kind that he forgave. That's an important note, bringing it back to our text when we're talking about false teaching, because sometimes that false teaching can be 90% accurate. It's that 10% that will kill you. But again, I didn't know any of that. And again, I began to be drawn to what I was reading about. And for the first time in a while, things seemed brighter. 
I began to feel like maybe everything wasn't pointless or empty, and so I decided that this was something that I was really interested in. So I decided to research how to convert to Judaism. If you do that, by the way, eventually you will come across a rabbi. And eventually, um, that rabbi, as you talk to him about it, will tell you, they'll actually discourage you from attempting to do it if you're a Gentile. They believe that Gentiles are generally better off living a good and moral life apart from the law unless they're really and truly dedicated to following the law. In other words, if you take on the law of Moses, you're subject to its blessings and curses, and if you walk away, your life is materially worse off than if you had just been a good person beforehand. So they discourage you from converting. Now, how do you know if you're really serious? Well, you undergo a trial period. You basically put yourself under the law for some period of time to see if it's something that you can successfully do, which at the time made sense. Standing here now, that is nuts. That is absolutely nuts. The whole point of the law is to demonstrate that there is something wrong with you that you have no hope apart from Jesus Christ. The law points us to Christ. And so the idea that you can sit there and go, yeah, I'm doing pretty good at this, is the height of idiocy. But that is what they teach. And I was so enthusiastic that I decided to skip the trial period and I promised God that I would obey his law. I would live it out. I failed in the first 24 hours. Uh, spectacularly, I failed morally, I failed ceremonially, I broke the law a lot, but hey, God's super merciful and forgiving, right? Well, two things happened. Number one, for the first time in years, my conscience, which I had apparently beat to death years earlier in that atheistic phase, had a bit of a resurrection, which was not fun. Secondly, I, uh, I wanted to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm making an active effort here to, to convert to Judaism, and that meant being familiar with the Old Testament. So I made the mistake of actually reading it. And that was a huge mistake because if I hadn't read it, I could have just merrily gone my way and believed that God was this big ball of merciful, loving, forgiving, non-holiness. But you know what reading the Old Testament does every five or so chapters to that image of God? It absolutely breaks it, doesn't it? And so that was my lot. I would break the law. I would read about how God was fundamentally, terrifyingly holy, and I would freak out. And that led to beginning to bargain with God. I would promise to do things in order to make up for my transactions or transgressions. But eventually the weight of my guilt was greater than my self-perceived capacity to perform. And I had to ultimately face the truth. God was holy. And even if I had somehow made up for some of my sins, the scales of justice were always going to balance against me. There was nothing I could do. The however many years I had left on this earth was nothing more than the period of time in the waiting room before the court of judgment. And I despaired. For the first time in my life, I actually contemplated, contemplated ending it. And I was in the, the depths of this terrifying, depressing thought when I was house-sitting for my grandparents in El Dorado Hills. And I was there one morning. I was actually, I remember I spent most of it in tears. And that was the moment when Jesus called. I was laying down in the, the guest bedroom of the house. I was sick to my stomach. I was beside myself. And all of a sudden, no explanation as to why, aside from verse 16, a thought popped into my head. Out of the blue, it was just, what about Jesus? Now, I hadn't gone to church the week before. There was no invitation to a Bible study. There was no church service. There was no accidental reading of the New Testament that happened anytime recently. I have no explanation for what happened other than the fact 
that Jesus has other sheep, he must get them and they will listen to his voice. And because Jesus gets his sheep, his name not only popped into my head, but I felt an immediate surge of hope. Now, again, I read a lot about religion you know, years earlier. So I, had, I recalled enough about Christianity to have an association between Jesus and the cross and forgiveness. And so in that moment, I looked up at the ceiling, because that's where God is, right? Um, and I said these exact words. I still remember them. I don't know if you're there. I don't know if you can hear me. But if you are who you say you are, and if you can do what you say you can do, I'm yours. Save me. And the second, and I mean the second I finished those words, I felt like something was different. And I popped out of bed, and I immediately got changed into a swimsuit. Now, if you're asking yourself why a swimsuit, well, um, again, while I have no, at the time, I had no idea why, I knew enough to know that the first thing you did after agreeing to follow Jesus would go get baptized, right? Very first thing. And my grandparents had a pool in the backyard. So I went outside in my bathing suits, looked up to the sky, because again, that's where God is, and I yelled, Jesus, I am yours, save me. And I dunked myself in that pool in a sort of self-baptism. Now, another fun fact, my grandparents live at the bottom of a hill, and uh, every house on that hill is built sequentially above it, which means everybody in the house above can see into the backyard of the house below. I thought I was alone, but when I popped out of that water, I happened to look to the left, and there was a rather large family having brunch. And they, they had heard and saw everything I had done, like forks were like halfway to mouths at this point. And uh, I waved at them sheepishly, got out of the pool, got dried off, and I went back to that Borders bookstore. Again, couldn't tell you why, all I knew was that Jesus was in the New Testament, I should probably buy one and read about him. So I bought exactly that, went to my car, opened to Matthew, and I began to read. And I read until I got to Matthew 9 and the story of the paralytic being lowered through the roof. And I, my breath, I'm catching in my throat when Jesus looked at the man in verse two and said, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And it was like, can this be done? If you know the story, you know what Jesus says there offended some of the Jews. So Jesus says in verses 4 to 6, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And when I read those words, I wept for joy. I wept in my car in the shopping center parking lot. I wept and I wept and I wept for what seemed like an eternity. Jesus could do it. Jesus could save me. And everything from that moment on changed. Now, don't get me wrong. It would take quite some time and a lot more reading before I fully understood what had happened that day before I understood the nuances and reality of the gospel more clearly, before I understood exactly what Jesus meant when he says in our passage in verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, before I understood exactly what that abundant life that he promised in the text actually meant. But he had already laid down his life for me, and on that day, Jesus had come to collect what he had already purchased. He called, and when he did, he changed me. And when he changed me, because he changed me, because he gave me new life, I heard his voice. Exactly as he says in verse 3, in verse 4, and verse 14. 
which is why immediately and without thinking about it and without needing anyone to tell me what to do, I jumped in that water and I bought that New Testament and I started reading. Because on that day, because the good shepherd gets his sheep, he went out and got one, exactly as our passage says. Now, brothers and sisters, as we wrap it up this evening, I do want to say, I, I, I know my story is unusual, right? And you have a, a, a lovely contrast between Austin's stories and mine. I've heard any number of testimonies over the years. We're gonna continue to share these collective testimonies. And if you don't know it, spoiler alert, they vary a lot between person and person. But what I'm hoping we all see, the point of doing this sermon tonight in this way, is that while the details vary from person to person, the real story is the same for every single one of us. It doesn't matter if you come to Saving Faith at rock bottom after a month-long bender of drugs and sexual immorality, or if you come to Saving Faith at seven after realizing your guilt after stealing a cookie. The supernatural reality is exactly the same. You came to faith because the shepherd gets his sheep. He personally came and called you. Brothers and sisters, if, if you are in Christ, if you have put your faith in him, then that means that the great shepherd with a deeply individual care and love has sought you out, called you by name, joined you to his flock, and is caring for you now. And because the shepherd paid the price for you on the cross, the shepherd will come to take what he paid for. He cannot be stopped or prevented from getting his, and the shepherd will never lose what he bought. The good shepherd always gets his sheep, and that's our hope, our comfort, and our joy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for literally all of this, Lord. I just... You are so good and gracious. May we remember, Lord, that no matter what the details are, you came and you got us. No matter how we heard the gospel, what we heard was the voice of our Savior. What we responded to was the voice of our Savior. And that it is effectual, sufficient, and that in him, because of him, through him, we lack nothing. May we recognize this, rejoice in this, and rest in this this week, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.